Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On the third edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we find out about the launch this month of the Welsh Coastal Path. There's details about a photographic competition in the UK's national parks, info about two walking festivals in May, and... These Tory boys that are running the country, they all went to Eton and Cambridge, and they're taking all our rights off us, and we're letting them. Mike Harding talks politics and mass trespassing at Kinder 80. I'm Andrew White, and welcome to the third Walks Around Britain podcast. Lots to get to talk about, as usual, on this edition of the podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, please feel free to send us an email. The address is podcast at walksaroundbritain.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. May is a very busy month in the outdoors world. It's National Walking Month, don't you know? And we've simply not been able to fit everything we've been working on into this edition of the podcast. So we're adding another edition in the middle of May too. It's a kind of buy one, get one free offer, I suppose. So if you subscribe to us on Audioboo or on iTunes, you can make sure that you don't miss the next edition. Now, come May the 5th, and there'll be a lot of this above the coast of Wales. Well, OK, perhaps not fireworks in the middle of the day, but on the 5th of May, there'll be much rejoicing as the Wales coastal path is opened making the whole coastline of Wales accessible to walkers for the very first time. And to talk about how the path came about, and how challenging making a coastal path for the whole country has been, is Angela Charlton, Director of the Ramblers in Wales. Hello Angela, and thank you for joining me on the podcast. Tell us about how the Wales Coastal Path came about. Well, the idea actually originated from a kitchen somewhere in Pembrokeshire. Jane Davidson, the then Environment Minister, and Rodri Morgan, the First Minister for Wales, happened to be having a chat in 2003 and thought that this might be a good idea as Pembrokeshire had opened their coast in 1970 and they could see the benefits that that was delivering to Wales with regards to tourism. So that's when the, the idea sort of first took hold. And then Jane, uh, with Ramblers Cymru and the director at the time, Beverly Penny, pushed the idea through so that by 2006, um, the project was already being announced as something that was going to be delivered and taken forward. Now, seeing as though the coast isn't owned by one body or, or one person, how difficult is it to arrange that kind of access? That's right. Um, in Wales, I'm employing Countryside Council for Wales, five staff members to work with local national parks, local authorities, with coastal project officers. They worked actually on the ground, so at grassroots level, engaging landowners and, and negotiating. And considering that the path has only taken five years to develop, albeit that 60% of it was pretty well in place. It, it's been achieved with, with very little difficulty, I would say. Was there any point along the way more problematic in arranging access? 
Obviously, Pembrokeshire should have been easy. Well, Pembrokeshire, yes, well, was complete by then, so it kind of was a good role model. And there are one or two areas in Wales that still have patches where perhaps the path goes too far inland than we would really like. And these will continue to be discussed and negotiated well after the opening on May the 5th. We, we have some areas of National Trust properties, for example, where the footpath is, again, a little further away from the coast than we would like. But we are continuing to negotiate as our CCW and, and local authorities. Now I've walked a part of the coastal walk around the Isle of Man and they've put in platforms to allow the path to hug the coast. Yeah. Is that something that will be looked at for those places which you say come too far inland? Yes, it would be. It'd be something that we would want to bring the path so that you can obviously see the coast as you're walking it. 870 miles is quite a distance to get perfect by May, but the plan is that we do walk as close to the coast as practical. We have an example in Margam where locally that they're not able to access a beach land area and um, Cutter Steel have access to that area and neg- negotiations and discussions are going on now and the local communities are also making their voices heard. So we have small pockets of this activity uh, around the, the coastal path. The path links up some rather attractive places yes, to visit, doesn't it? It certainly does, and goes through diverse communities. One of the communities we're working with at the moment is a community called Kidwelly. That's Carmarthenshire area. Um, it's right on the coast. It's a small town that is perhaps a little bit economically deprived, and but with the coastal path coming through and with our working with them, they can now see the benefits of actually having that coastal path with circular routes that come into their community and being able to offer visitors those things that that visitors want to see when they come to Wales and and experience Wales. So they're also some of the projects that we're undertaking. How much benefit does a properly defined and marketed coastal path bring? Well, you may have heard that um, the Lonely Planet are promoting the fact that we're the only country in the world that you can walk right round. You know, obviously with Offers Dyke, you're you're going to be able to do that. We're being recognised because we're becoming quite unique in that and people are wanting to visit us. Um, We we did uh, actually produce a piece of research last year that looked at the economic benefits of walking to Wales, walking and hill walking. And walking on its own contributes $632 to the economy with 12,000 jobs, which is about 5% of visitors to Wales. That's quite a lot. Um, That's a lot, but there's also further 22% have walking as part of their visit. So if we can make that that even more attractive, there are other things that we need to look at, you know, um, how people can access B&Bs, what their needs are on the coastal path to make it an enjoyable experience. Now, one of the big attractions of walking a long-distance path is the ability to travel there and back on the train and leave the car at home. Yes. How easy is it to get to by rail? Not very easy in in some instances. We we have quite a gap. Um, But we're looking at this with people like Midwell's Tourism Partnership, working with the Riva and others. I know there are various projects going on currently that are looking at at this transport issue that will bring people into Wales, that we can actually develop walks that will get people onto the coast and off the coast. You know, it's all very well bringing people here, but they have to be able to move around easily. Right. How accessible is the path to disabled people, wheelchairs? Yep, 
the whole ethos behind the coastal path is where practical is that it is multi-user. Right. Certainly in areas like Deeside, that's being catered for. We work with various disability groups look at, and what their needs are to be able to get them onto the coastal path. And that, that's been considered. Is, is it possible to include everyone on this particular stretch? What's practical? So they are being considered as is cycling and other forms of getting around the coastal path the bridle ways as well where that's practical. Of course there are parts of Offers Dyke which are accessible to wheelchairs and pushchairs aren't there? That's right and we'll, and um, pushchairs and prams and families are being considered. Again Deeside I think is, is probably one of the best examples uh, of that where they do have um, proper multi-user paths uh, along certain stretches. So what's happening on the 5th of May and how can people find out more about it? Well, on the 5th, it's all go. <laughs> it's going crazy at the moment. And then we came up with the idea of, well, let's have a big Welsh walk. Let's have a huge celebration. As part of this project, Welsh Government has funded us to get as many people out onto the coastal path as we can on May the 5th so people understand that it's there, the value of it. We have over 30 ramblers groups delivering walks and in a lot of instances not one walk and they're open to the general public. Anyone in Wales, everyone and anyone in Wales can come out and experience the coast. The walks range from one mile to, well, there is somebody who's walking the whole of uh, the coastal path. They're starting on May the 5th and there's somebody who's actually doing marathons right round Wales and completing on May the 5th. So there's something there for everybody, I would say. There are family walks going on also. So if you go to our website, you'll be able to see all this information, see what people are doing. And we already have over 400 miles covered and a lot of organisations still designing their walks. Are people allowed to come into Wales from across the border? Oh, they must cross the border, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, <laughs> we do like visitors to come in. Come and see our uh, Grand Slam trophy, if you like. <laughs> <That's>, that <laughs> that sounds good. good. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Apologies um, to our Scottish wooden spoon listeners. <laughs> yes. Everyone's welcome. We're all in a very good mood in Wales at the moment, yes. as you can imagine. <laughs> um, but no, it is open to everybody. Thank you very much for joining us, Angela. Thank you. And if you want more information about the Wales Coastal Path, visit the show notes for this edition of the podcast on our blog. And if you're heading out on the Coastal Path, we'd love to hear your experiences and see your photos. So don't be shy in sharing. <laughs> May is a month where we walkers are spoilt for choice in walking festivals, from the Isle of Arran to the Isle of Wight, the Isle of Man to Jersey, and plenty to choose from on the mainland too. We're going to find out about two walking festivals which start in May. Firstly, Mary Copley is here. Mary, hello, tell us about the Rutland Walking Festival. Yeah, I mean, this is the third year of the Rutland Walking Festival. Uh, it happens in May, and this year we've got two weeks of some great walks in the area. You can get out to the countryside, uh, you can see Rutland Water in all its glory. There's something for everyone. So what types of walks are available? Uh, we have health walks throughout the week. We have medium-sized walks, so from three to six miles, and then we have something a bit longer for those that really want to stretch their legs. That's great, but I've got a question. Whereabouts is Woodland? <laughs> we come Most across, people might not know where it is. We come across this quite a lot. Uh, we're England's <laughs> smallest county. We're right in the middle of the country. So we're in the East Midlands, between Leicestershire, Lincolnshire, Northamptonshire. So it's tucked away, but it's a real gem to find. So most people might have driven through without knowing. 
<laughs> yes. I mean, we're within two hours' drive from London, so very easy access on the A1. Uh, but yes, people blink and they've gone through it. <laughs> <laughs> so when is the festival and how can we find out more? The festival is the 20th of May to the 2nd of June this year and you can get all the details on discover-rutland.co.uk. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Mary. Lovely. Thanks for having me. And sticking with England, and Helen Cutting joins me from the Suffolk Walking Festival. Helen, can you tell us about the festival and what kind of walks are available? Right, well, the festival, it starts on the 19th of May and runs through till the 10th of June. There's 39 walks in total, covering sort of various different areas of Suffolk. The walks vary in length from one and a half, two miles, right through to long-distance walks of up to 15 miles. We've got walks for children, historical walks, walks including cream teas, walks about murders, right through from in the towns and villages and out into the countryside as well. We've got for this year, which is new, is a challenge walk taking place on the 20th to the 24th of May, which is a long distance walk over five days, starting down in Constable Country and then working its way up through Suffolk, along the Stour Valley, along traditional footpaths, and ending up in a small town called Mildenhall, up in the northwest of the Suffolk County. And it is completely guided, so for those people who are not completely familiar with the area or don't feel comfortable walking a long distance on their own, but would like to try it, there will be a full guide there, and back markers and everything, and someone along the route giving an explanation of any of the points of interest along the way. On the 27th of May, there's the sites of Five Gates of Bury St Edmunds, which is a historical cathedral town in Suffolk. That's a three to four mile walk, which is lasting about three hours. So how can people find out more information about the festival? To find out more, we've got a website which is discoversuffolk.org.uk and there's a downloadable PDF of all the, of the walking festival brochure. That's lovely. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Helen. Thank you. And all the details and website links to those two festivals are on the show notes to this podcast on our blog. And if you want to find out a full list of walking festivals going off in May, then visit our website at walksaroundbritain.co.uk and follow the links to the walking festival section. Now, if you're a bit of a budding photographer, then there's even more of an incentive this month to pay a visit to your favourite national park here in the UK, as there's a fantastic competition going on at the moment. To tell us more about it is Claire O'Connor from the UK's National Parks. Claire, thanks for coming on the podcast. So tell us about how the competition came about. It's in full swing now, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, We thought 15 national parks in the UK, we thought we have some of the most amazing views in the country Mm. and we should be celebrating it in this Olympic year. So we launched a photo competition called Winning Landscapes. Right. We are very happy that people were trying to upload photographs before it was even open. And currently we have well over 100. So uh, we'd love to see more, though. So what kind of shots have you got so far? What, what, what's caught your eye? Some really beautiful um, landscapes and some of them just really imaginative ones. And some of them really beautiful. And I think most people who are good photographers just like sharing them and it's lovely to be able to put them on our website if people want to have a look they're all up there to have a look at to give you some inspiration but we would love people who go into national parks to send us some more 
and the prize is a pair of Merrill um, footwear, which you can pick from their uh, spring and summer range this year. So the competition's open until Thursday the 10th of May, and Ben Fogel is one of our judges, and Catherine Cook, and we hope that we get as many as possible in. How can people upload their photos? Well, if you go to nationalparks.gov.uk, on the homepage there is all the details of the competition. Please would people read the terms and conditions, and people have to fill in the entry form. Obviously, you know, we want to be able to find you to give you your shoes if you win. And also, all the entries we've had so far are uploaded onto that site, so people can have a look at the lovely photos we've had in so far. And there's such a great variety of landscapes in the national parks, isn't there? Absolutely, yes. We've got mountain ranges and broads and moors and woods. Yes, all the best parts of the UK can be found in the national parks. So there's certainly plenty to look at. And uh, if people would like to look through and get some inspiration or just go for a walk in a national park and you never know when you might see something. I know driving over Exmoor sometimes... I look over and see some deer, and I've never got my camera with me, but hopefully people might be a bit more organised than I am. <laughs> and of course, these days, lots of people will be using mobile film cameras now, as the modern ones are such great quality. That's right, yes. You need to look on the term condition, because we do need them at a certain resolution. But as you say, these days, the mobile phone cameras are such good quality that many of them will probably meet that criteria. But it is just worth checking, because although they, they may look good quite small, obviously we will may be using them larger, so we need them to quite a high resolution. But so far, it doesn't seem to have been a problem for someone, because we've had loads of them. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Claire. Thank you, not at all. Now, before I journey out into a national park to take some snaps, I think I might need to brush up on my photographic skills. What I need right now is a professional photographer to join me on the podcast. And funnily enough, I've got Dan Santillo, who specialises in landscape photography of the Gower and the Brecon Beacons. Dan, what's the secret to some of your amazing landscapes? Knowing the area helps a lot, because you get used to sort of what view looks best and where the sun's going to be at various times of the day. But you can also look at OS Maps, and there's a really good bit of free software called the Photographer's Ephemeris, which allows you to see where the sun's going to be at any given time at any given location. That's really handy. It is, definitely, yeah. You, to find it, just Google TPE. I'll do that. So you've got an idea of the route you want to take. Yeah. What other considerations are there for undertaking a photography walk rather than just a leisure walk? I suppose another thing is you could be staying in the same place for quite a long time, waiting for the um, light to be right or the weather to stop raining or, or various things like that, really. Just to get that, that little glimmer of, of sunlight coming through the clouds or something like that. Hopefully, yeah. So more layers help. Um, yes, a lot, a lot of layers can help. And I've been on top of Brecon Beacons in minus 19 wind chill, wearing, I think, three fleeces, two base layers and two coats. And I was just about warm enough. <laughs> because you're just waiting for that one second where the shot is perfect. That's right, yes. So a tripod is useful to take out with you. Does it have to be a new one? Um, I've had mine for years. It's carbon fibre, which is the lightest you can get. I think it's brilliant, really. If you haven't got a tripod, well, what uh, could you use to, to steady your shot? Well, there have been times I've actually forgotten my tripod. So I've put my bag down on the ground, make sure it's nice and steady, and you sort of place the camera on the bag and use that as this sort of tripod. I suppose you could also use a, a tree stump or, or a fence pole in the same way too. But in what situations would you need to use a tripod anyway? Definitely low light, because the... The lower the light, the um, longer the exposure is going to be. So you need a tripod to keep the camera steady so it's not blurred. 
Okay, so we've got a route, a map, we've taken a tripod or we've found a natural place to pop the camera on. What kind of general rules are there to, to help take better landscape photos? There's a few so-called rules or more like guidelines to help with composing the photo. Right. Perhaps the most common one is a rule of thirds. Okay. So look through the viewfinder and you imagine a noughts and crosses grid over the photo. If you place prominent things on those lines, that puts it in, the, in one of the thirds of the photo. And that can really aid composition. So is that where our eyes want things to be in a photo then? It's just one of those things that, for some reason, the brain likes. Like another strange thing the brain likes is um, odd numbers. If you have two people in the photo, it won't look quite as good as if you had three people or one person. It's very strange. That's really interesting. So, so what kind of other techniques helps framing a shot? You want to look around and sort of, is there anything you can use in the foreground to add interest in the, in the, in the front of the photo, such as a rock or maybe some flowers or plants or something like that? Perhaps one of the things that can help when, take, when looking at a photo is look at the scene and let your eye wander around and see where your eye ends up. And what can really help your eye get to the um, subject of the photo is a thing called a leading line, such as a wall or a path that sort of pushes your eye towards the um, subject. Most people tend to take photos from their head height, but can it enhance a photo if you change the height that you take the shot? Um, yes, it's something I've just learnt recently, actually, from a friend. Typically, I would put the tripod at the full height or stand and take the photo. But if you put the tripod low or crouch down, it, for some reason, it really improves the photo, or it can do anyway, depending on the subject. It's worth giving it a go anyway. And you do need to ensure that shots are level. That's right, yeah. You can get a, a little spirit level that sits on the hot shoe of the camera, which really helps, and I use that all the time. It's becoming a trend now for most people to snap away using mobile phone cameras. Yeah. And for this national park competition, high-quality images are essential, as, as we've just heard from Claire. But the quality of most of these cameras these days, in, 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 like smartphones, are really quite excellent, aren't they? Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, I've seen some photos from the iPhone 4S, and the quality is absolutely brilliant, I think. So when you're trekking out, what's the big difference in going out for a photography walk as opposed to a leisure walk for you? Well, the, the main thing's got to be the weight, because you've got to carry a lot more equipment than normal. For example, maybe a tripod or, and a camera and maybe several lenses as well. So is there any final advice you can offer people who are going to go walking and shooting in the national parks to enter this competition? Well, I suppose, above all, enjoy the walk. Excellent. Thanks very much, Dan. OK, no problem. Then the Winning Landscapes competition is on now, and entries close on the 10th of May. So if you are going to enter, you better get a move on. The details are on the show notes for this edition of the podcast on our blog, and you can get to it by clicking through from the homepage on our website. And did you spot my over-eager trigger finger taking a picture with my mobile phone during Claire's interview? The phone has been duly removed from my hands. I left the studio to come to Edale to join the 80th anniversary of the mass trespass on Kinderscout here in the Peak District, where I guess there's probably about 200 people outside the Moreland Centre here. It was the 28th of April 1932 when around 400 walkers from Manchester and Sheffield headed out to Kinderscout, the highest point in the Peak District. And the group from Manchester came face to face with the Duke of Devonshire's gamekeepers just as they scrambled up towards the Kinder Plateau. Several of those trespassers were arrested and jailed on the charges of incitement and riotous assembly in the scuffles which happened with the gamekeepers. The mass trespass had far-reaching impact, eventually leading to the legislation in 1949 to establish the national parks. Now, we've just listened to the speeches from The Great and the Good, which you can hear on a special podcast extra. 
But I'm glad to have two of those speakers with me now. Dame Fiona Reynolds, Director General of the National Trust, and Mike Harding, singer, songwriter, broadcaster and walker. Fiona, what does it mean to be at the Trespass Celebration today? Well, I think it's an extraordinary event. I mean, obviously hundreds of people here, some of them still who are on the original Trespass, but people who care about access to open country, who care about this glorious uh, land that is Kinder and the Peak District. And of course, I have personal memories here too. I've been on several of these reunions and with the National Trust owning Kinder Scout uh, for the last 30 years, you know, it's a very important place in, in my heart too. So what kind of work does the National Trust do on Kinder? Well, we took it on 30 years ago when it was in a pretty appalling state, actually, with atmospheric pollution, overgrazing, all kinds of uh, problems to do with you know, poor management over the years. And so since that time, we've been gradually improving it. And we've reached a point now where we've got a major restoration program in hand, trying to create a sort of much more sustainable peatland habitat, re-wetting the peat, which had dried out and was eroding, but also replanting moorland plants and actually creating both the, the nature um, and the access opportunities that this wonderful landscape deserves. Because it's not just, I mean, we, we're looking at it from a walking perspective. Mm. It's, it's a very, very important area from an, uh, from an environment point of view. It is. It's a national nature reserve, which is um, one of the highest designations possible for any area of land to achieve. Um, and it's a nature reserve that needs management and needs improving. So there's a kind of fantastically challenging task that we have ahead of us, but uh, one that we're totally committed to. And many people here, many organisations here today are helping us with that task. So the National Trust is really getting people mm. to promote people to get out into the, into the countryside. It's a very important thing to do for, for children, a new generation. It is. I mean, we know how much access to the countryside, you know, is good for our health, it's good for our well-being, it's good for us generally. And yet there are still many, many children in society that don't get that opportunity. One in five children has never visited the countryside. Many children don't play outside anymore. Children don't play unsupervised anymore. We all know the reasons why, but actually we've got children locked in front of screens and, you know, not enjoying this, this, this extraordinary countryside, but also not benefiting from the health and other benefits that flow from it. So uh, this will be your last Kinder Trespass uh, celebration as the General of the National Trust. How does that feel? Well, I'm really sad to be leaving the Trust, but that doesn't mean I'm going to go away. <laughs> I shall still be involved. Um, I bet I'll be back on a future Trespass uh, anniversary. And actually, I shall still be visiting. I'm a very keen walker. I love these hills. So, uh, no, I shall still be as involved as much as I possibly can. Mike, it's been a great day so far, hasn't it? Fantastic. Great turnout. It's great to see two of the original people who were on the trespass over here and also see great people like Jim Perrin and Jerry Perlman from the Ramblers Association. It's been a great turnout, great day. Stuart McConney, of course, doing a brilliant job opening the, officially opening the uh, trespass 80th anniversary. So what does it mean to you to be here today? Well, I've said this so many times that I, I don't want to sort of lose my passion <laughs> because if you do repeat things, you stop listening to what you're saying. But without the Kinder Mass Trespass, I think there would probably have been no national parks. There'd probably be no freedom of access. We wouldn't be walking in the mountains like we do nowadays. It was a very, very important thing. Five men went to prison for standing up for the rights of all of us. And we should never forget that. That there was a repressive regime running this country in 1932, very much as there is nowadays. They've taken everything from us. They've taken the water, the gas, the electricity, telecoms. They've taken everything we ever had, and now they're going to take the NHS off us and sell that too. And they did the same with the mountains in the, in the, in the 19th century. And it was only people walking onto the mountains in 1932 that won it back for us eventually. 
because some people my age it seems ludicrous that you can't go onto mountains well the children find it hard to believe that at one time you couldn't walk off even if it was a footpath you couldn't walk off it without fear of prosecution and of later of course you, there was no law of tras- trespass in the criminal law but it was a uh, civil law and you could be done for trespass well, of course not many people did get done but the, the threat of trespass hanging over you meant that you very often didn't walk on the mountains and people had just had enough and they just said in 1932 end of we're going do you feel that there's a, a mood going like that at the moment I think that more and more people are getting angrier and angrier, but you've got to remember one very, very important thing. In the 1930s, we didn't have the drug of television. We didn't have the drug of the media battering people's sensibilities so that they didn't understand what had happened to them. There's a feeling of disconnect now with politics, and that's very dangerous, because people don't believe that they can vote and change anything. They believe that they're all the same. Now, when they start believing that, watch this summer. If it gets really hot, and there's a lot of more austerity coming there could well be even more city riots and that's because people feel a disconnect I do feel a great anger amongst people probably the same anger there was during the general strike of 26 and things like the mass trespass, I do So the, the, the history does seem to be sort of loaded towards the middle and upper class doesn't it? Well history as it's taught in schools doesn't include anything about the mass trespass or even they might make a passing mention to the Tolpuddle Martyrs men sent to Australia for forming a union good stuff you know, that's what the classes will do to you. That's what the upper classes will do, what they're doing now. These Tory boys that are running the country, they all went to Eton and Cambridge, and they're taking all our rights off us. And we're letting them. So the Manchester Rambler, very significant song, isn't it? It's the anthem, really, of the Rambler movement, and, the, you know, sort of working-class access to the mountains, too, written by great songwriter Ewan McCall. It'll always be sung, I think, as long as there are people walking in the mountains. Mike, Fiona, thank you very much. Well, that's all we can squeeze into this edition of the podcast. But remember, as we've got too many features for one programme this month, we've got two editions of the podcast here in May. So if you subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on Audioboo, you can make sure you don't miss the next edition. Until then, goodbye and happy walking. (laughs) 